Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today's episode is all about gaslighting and incels in the film don't worry, darling. If you listened to the most recent episode that I put out last week, you'll know that I will be spending a bit of time more specifically talking about Jordan Peterson's involvement in incel culture. And the last part of that last episode kind of gives a brief summary of of how the two tie together. So I really recommend listening to the Jordan Peterson episode before listening to this one. I also recommend not listening to this episode if you don't want the movie spoiled. I know that it's still quite a recent movie and I will be discussing in detail the plot, so here is your spoiler alert. And a brief content warning as there will be some brief discussion of suicidal behavior in this episode. Okay, with all the warnings out of the way, let's kind of jump in. Um, I'm going to give a brief summary of the movie before I start because I have a feeling that many of you have not watched the movie yet since it is still um, a newer movie, or if you have, just to remind you um, of the plot. So our movie centers around um, Alice and Jack Chambers, who are a young married couple who appear to be living in the like 1950s style company town called Victory, California, which is run by this mysterious company that Jack uh, works for. Every day, the men go out to the desert to work, and the women stay home to clean and prepare dinner for their husbands. The women are told to never venture out to headquarters due to it being dangerous materials that the company works with, but nobody quite seems to know what it is that the company does. One woman in the town named Margaret has become an outcast uh, after she took her son into the desert, which resulted in her son's death and Margaret's slow unraveling. One morning while Alice is taking the trolley across town, she notices a plane crash somewhere in the desert and tries to run out to get help, but ends up stumbling into Victory Headquarters, which is like this weird little building covered in in windows. She touches the window and she starts to have hallucinations before she wakes back up in her home. From that point on, Alice begins to have more like escalating hallucinations and it 
culminates in one one day she hallucinates while at her dance class that she can see margaret smashing her head into the mirror she runs home just in time to see margaret um, slitting her own throat and falling off of a roof before being quickly rushed away by men in red jumpsuits alice tries to tell jack her husband about it and he dismisses it telling her that margaret just fell off the window while cleaning windows and she's fine um but that they are going to have to leave victory so that her husband can take care of her. Jack then calls the town doctor, who seems to be mostly a psychiatrist, to come talk to Alice, and his name is Dr. Collins. Dr. Collins gives the same story and attempts to heavily medicate Alice. Fast forward through other events in the movie, and Alice and Jack invite some neighbors over, including Frank and Shelley, who are the well, Frank is the creator of Victory and Shelley is his wife. It's unclear how much of a role Shelley has in running Victory, um, but they are essentially like the head honchos of the town. And Frank has a private conversation in the kitchen with Alice where he essentially tells her that she's right. The things that she's been suspecting about the town are correct and she's been waiting. he's been waiting for someone to challenge him. So she takes him up on that and starts to confront him at dinner in front of all the neighbors. Um, but Frank starts to gaslight her and makes her seem unstable in front of the other guests. She eventually is taken away by Frank's men and put through electroshock therapy by Dr. Collins. As she's going through this electroshock therapy, she starts to have these visions of herself in another life in modern times where she's a surgeon who lives with her unemployed partner, Jack, and they're struggling to make ends meet, and they have a very unhappy relationship. And we realize that that is real life and victory is a simulation. That's kind of one of the big twists, is that victory is a simulation, and she doesn't know that she's in the simulation. She gets back from her treatment and seems to be cured. Um, However, as she goes through her day-to-day, she starts to have the hallucinations and flashbacks, and then ultimately remembers the whole truth, which is that victory is this fake world created by Frank and that Jack, her her partner in real life, has had kidnapped her and essentially forced her into this simulation. And she is like in a bed somewhere hooked up to a VR headset, uh, unable to like move. Jack realizes that she now knows the truth and tries to give her this sob story about how she was so miserable being a doctor that he did this for her. And as he's trying to, like, calm her down and convince her to not leave him, she smashes a glass tumbler over his head and he dies. And when the men die in the simulation, they die in real life. Frank realizes that Jack is dead and sends his man out to capture Alice. As she's trying to escape, gets caught by her neighbor, Bunny, who explains that she has known the whole time that it's a simulation and she's one of the only women who is there by choice because she can be with her deceased children in the simulation, but all the other women in the neighborhood don't know that they are there against their will or that they are in a simulation. Bunny tells her to flee, to go to the headquarters, because that's how you get out of the simulation, which is what happened the first time she touched the windows. Chase ensues. Simultaneously, Shelley kills Frank and essentially escapes him, and we are led to believe in the last scene that Alice makes it to the portal and escapes. Okay, I tried to be succinct with that. (laughs) I skipped a lot. 
Um, but if you've seen the movie, then then you know what I'm talking about. But I think this is enough for us to kind of go through um, these two big topics that I want to talk about today in the context of this movie. Uh, I'm going to start with gaslighting because I think it's a little easier um, to talk about. And my main purpose in wanting to talk about gaslighting in the context of this movie is to really provide some kind of concrete understanding of the definition of gaslighting because it's a term that I think has become quite popular and has become a pop psychology term. And much like things like trauma responses or trauma, pop psychology terms can often become very divorced from their original meaning or their original use. So I just wanted to take a time to highlight what the original definitions are, and then show you in this movie how gaslighting works. So to kick it off, uh, the definition and origin of the term. So actually, the origin of the term gaslighting comes from a 1944 film called Gaslight, starring Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer. And essentially, the plot of the movie is that Ingrid Bergman's character marries a man who is like a liar and a murderer, and he has married her so that he can get access to her house because his her house was the scene of one of his previous crimes and he's trying to find some treasure. And so what he does every night is he says he's going out to see his friends, but he really goes up into the attic and like does weird stuff and moves furniture around and turns on the gas lights, so like the lamps. And she then in the next morning will say, while you were gone, I saw this weird stuff happening. I saw the gas lights on and he tells her, no, that's crazy. That That's not possible. And so that's where the term gaslighting comes from is because in the film, well, the film is called Gaslight, but it was about her thinking she saw or knowing she saw gaslights and him telling her, no, you're crazy. And so that's really what gaslighting is in a nutshell, is it's the effort of one person to undermine another person's confidence and stability by causing the victim to doubt their own senses and beliefs. I've also read other definitions that say, talk to this idea of creating a reality that's different for the victim than the reality they're in. And it is the contrast between the reality that the perpetrator has created and the reality the victim is living that causes distress for the victim. And I think it's important to note here that gaslighting can be an individual or a structural phenomenon. So an example of an individual phenomenon would be in an interpersonal relationship, like often in domestic violence situations. In the film, there are lots of examples of Jack gaslighting Alice and diminishing what she has seen or experienced by telling her that it's not possible. So that's on an individual level where it's just Jack telling Alice that what she has seen or experienced is not real. Structurally would be a much larger phenomenon. And I think a real life example of structural gaslighting is some of the backlash to things like the Me Too movement or the systemic exclusion of women of color or working women from the Me Too movement or from at least like public narratives. And the gaslighting is essentially by leaving people out of these movements or by the backlash to the movements, it's trying to convince a group of people that their experiences are not real or that they didn't experience them the way that they're sharing. In the film, the entire world of victory could be seen as a structural phenomenon of gaslighting, particularly because none of the women know that they are in a simulation and 
everything from the men's behavior to the roles asked of the women to the like kind of culture of victory contributes to women the women who live there not knowing what is real and what is not real and being told explicitly and implicitly that what they are experiencing is not real and i would argue that the structural or like systemic gaslighting is what filters down into individual gaslighting and a very clear example of that in the film is the way in which margaret is treated and margaret experiences both racial and gendered gaslighting and i'll i'll break that down a little bit later but she is one of the only black people in the town the only black woman that i can think of or at least the only black woman who has like lines and isn't just in the background um and margaret is told by everyone in the community that she is crazy she is shunned she like other women are told to not speak to her the husbands are weird to her husband and basically treat him like you need to get your woman under control and so because she is essentially on the verge of figuring out the truth of victory because she went into the desert she is treated by the system of victory as a problem and so has to be convinced that what she saw wasn't real and because the infrastructure of victory is set up to then you know affect everyone in the same way it's all about like uniformity that trickles down so that every interpersonal interaction she has with people contributes to the gaslighting phenomenon so i think don't worry darling is a good example of all levels of gaslighting so as i mentioned there are multiple types of gaslighting too. There's um, specifically racial and gendered gaslighting seem to be the, the two main types that I found in the literature. I'm pulling this definition from an article by Davis and Ernst that was published in 2020. You can find it on the sources page. And they give the definition of racial gaslighting as the political, social, economic, and cultural process that perpetuates and normalizes a white supremacist reality through pathologizing those who resist. And I think this is very clear for the character of Margaret in the film, in that there, I don't know if it was intentional for her to be one of the only women of color, and let alone one of the only black women in the film. I don't know how intentional that was, but there is something to the phenomenon of her being different and othered from the other wives because she is black and not white. Plus, she, you know, broke the only rule of victory was is that she she went out into the desert she immediately becomes pathologized the narrative of margaret is that she's not well it's this like weird coded 1950s language that's like she has a mental illness but they they won't say that and we also see that her husband and dr collins are trying to medicate her to keep her from speaking about what she saw in the desert and so she is such a clear example of this pathologizing that she's trying to resist the narrative of victory. And rather than there being any room for her experience or her story, it immediately becomes there's something wrong with her and she must be treated for her illness. It's also through the cultural process of victory that contributes to the gaslighting of Margaret. And this is set up at the very beginning of the film where we first start to see what are the routines of the people who live in. Alice and Jack's neighborhood. And at the beginning of the film, you see essentially the same thing happening every day. The women cook breakfast for their husbands, pack their husbands' lunches, 
you know, get them ready for work, and then they all exit their house at the same time. The men get into their cars, wave goodbye to their wives, and then the wives are free to, like, go about their day and go to, like, their classes or go shopping or whatever it is that they're going to do to fill their time. And Margaret is noticeably absent from this ritual at the beginning of the film. We notice that Alice is, like, looking around for her and asks, like, you know, what's going on with Margaret? And this is when the narrative begins that she's not well and she needs to rest and take her medication. And this narrative is spun by Alice's neighbors and they all sort of co-create this narrative. Margaret has violated the cultural norm of showing your husband to the door and waving goodbye to him as he starts his day. And so therefore, that process is used to further the gaslighting and to further the pathologizing of her. And again, I think it has to be stated that it is more powerful against Margaret because she is the only Black woman on the cul-de-sac and in many of the activities. And Alice, even though she will later experience this herself, Alice participates in the gaslighting of Margaret and participates in the not only structural part of it, but interpersonally and individually has conversations with Margaret where she's like, you need to stop. Um, tells her to stop calling her and the, and also participates in the isolating of Margaret from the community. And the film also shows us what happens when you perpetuate and isolate someone for having ideas that go against the norms. And Margaret ultimately attempts to take her own life because of the like ostracization she's gone through and the gaslighting, right, by people telling her that she's crazy and she doesn't see any way out of her situation. I personally wouldn't give this film any awards for representation or diversity as I think there could have been a lot more with Margaret and her husband. There could have been a lot more characters throughout that were not white. But I do think that in this case, Margaret and her husband being one of the only black couples in the neighborhood adds to this like racialized gaslighting and also is a side effect of incel culture which has some inherently white supremacist beliefs to it, but we'll get into that later. (laughs) I do think the film could have played around a little bit with maybe different racial groups and seeing how different women from different ethnic backgrounds respond to gaslighting or are targeted for gaslighting differently. Because I could see within a town like Victory, there almost being a hierarchy of who is most targeted with Margaret as a black woman being like at the bottom and and being the most attacked. Um, But then there also being a way to explore things like the model minority myth for Asian women and other ethnic stereotypes and how that would play into gaslighting and how certain people need to be controlled. Um, But I think that may have doubled the length of the film. So I understand why it's not possible. Now, the other type of gaslighting I want to talk about was gendered gaslighting, and this is gaslighting that is rooted, rather than normalizing a white supremacist reality, is about uh, normalizing a misogynist reality. The film clearly has a lot more time focused on this type of gaslighting, and I would say the bulk of the film is dedicated to showing how Alice is gaslit because she is a woman. and both by, you know, interpersonally, like by her husband, but also by, again, the culture built. And she 
ultimately does experience almost the same exact thing that Margaret does because once she goes into the desert, she is treated differently by her community and everyone that she seeks support from essentially tries to tell her that what she has seen or what she has experienced is is not true. It's different because she isn't run out of the community as quickly. She's given more opportunities to come back into the community that it doesn't seem like Margaret was given. And so I see that is where in the difference is in that Alice as a white woman is not targeted the same way as a black woman was in their community. The example with Frank gaslighting Alice at the dinner party, I think is also a very unique picture of how gaslighting can work in abusive relationships. And I know that Frank and Alice are not in a relationship, but we see that they have a private interaction that no one else can overhear where he tells her like, you're so smart. You're on to me. This is what I've been waiting for. I want someone to challenge me. You know, I want someone to call me out and you're going to be the person to do it. And so in like their private communication where there's, there's no record of it, there's no way that she can prove he said these things to her. He's telling her one reality, right? This reality that Frank really is a person who values differing opinions, which is clearly not true based on the world he's created. And then when she tries to rise to this expectation that he has for her in front of her peers, he puts her down immediately, like immediately and tells her that she's lying, that she's delusional and basically tells Jack like he needs to get her under control and needs to get her help. And it's like deeply embarrassing and that, I think, is the reality of like gaslighting, particularly by abusive partners, is that the reality you may have together is different than the reality they put on in front of guests, right? Frank and Alice in a one-on-one conversation, he's telling her one thing and then doing the exact opposite thing in front of other people with the sole goal of embarrassing her. And I think that is a distinction about gaslighting in that it is, in- it is an intentional behavior if someone is gaslighting you. And I want to make this very clear because I see gaslighting get thrown around a lot on the internet. And I understand that people are are like learning, (laughs) learning it and wanting to apply it. But gaslighting is an intentional behavior. It is an abusive behavior. And the goal of it is to either embarrass or confuse the victim to the point where they can no longer try to stand up for themselves or fight back against the abuser. Gaslighting is not you know, unintended bad phrasing or unintended hurtful comments. Those those can be painful. I'm not excusing those and saying that's okay, but that's not gaslighting. Gaslighting does have a very specific purpose to it and relies on certain oppressive processes that are already in place to work. It is possible for people who are in a privileged class like men or white people to be gaslit But the kind of structure of our society is built around gaslighting marginalized people. So people of color, women, queer people, you know, you name it. And gaslighting has to be intentional because you are, you as the, as a perpetrator of gaslighting are trying to create a reality that is different from the reality the victim is experiencing. And so it has to be purposeful. It has to be like targeted and thought through because you can't just like come up with a reality out of nowhere. Um, and again, because the purpose of it is typically to like embarrass 
or confuse the victim, there has to be something behind it. There's some sort of planning behind it. So in summary, gaslighting can be racialized and gendered. It is about undermining other people's confidence and stability in their own senses and beliefs and is a purposeful attacking behavior. So not good. Don't do it. Stop gaslighting. (laughs) Please, if you've been doing it. This takes me to the second part, which is about incels. If you've never heard this term before, incel is a sort of like abbreviation for the term involuntarily celibate. And the like key defining factor of, of an incel is someone who feels they have an inability to have a sexual or romantic relationship even though they desire them. So it's different than being like asexual, which is asexuality that usually involves some sort of low interest in sexual or romantic relationships. And asexuality as it is a sexuality is not a um, like choice or, you know, role that someone takes on. Incels typically do have a desire for some sort of sexual or romantic partnership and are increasingly frustrated by their inability to achieve those goals. The term was actually originally created by a woman who wanted to create a online community for people who were struggling with, you know, being single and feeling lonely. And it wasn't just for men. It was a, you know, like mixed gendered community and was really kind of like a social support place where people could come talk about their their difficulties with dating and talk to people who had the same experiences. However, since the creation of the term incel in the first like online forum, the community has really taken a drastic shift and is now dominated by generally heterosexual men who have a very bleak worldview and many of their views are infused with an intense hatred and misogyny. The community is still um, mainly online and you find incels on certain places like Reddit or 4chan. However, incel views have seemed to become more mainstream and are likely to be encountered on other social media platforms or other places in on the internet that are, um, you know, more accessible to larger amounts of people rather than like, you know, subreddits, which are not always accessible to kind of like your mainstream internet consumer. So how do incels play a role in the film Don't Worry Darling? Well, two ways. One is that our main character, Jack, is in a way an incel. Um, it's, it's a tricky one because he does have a romantic relationship and that he is partnered with Alice in the like real world, but he is very upset with the way that their relationship is going and seems to have these beliefs that I don't remember if they're married in the real life, but essentially like beliefs that a wife should, you know, take care of a husband's needs, like feeding him and taking care of his sexual needs and that men should earn more money than their female partners and a lot of like those very kind of conservative traditional beliefs. And those are often beliefs we find in the incel community. The second way is that Chris Pine's character, Frank, his sort of like empire through which victory, the city, 
is created is very much geared toward incel men. We realize that Jack learned about Frank by listening to Frank's podcast, which features a lot of content about, you know, men needing to like take back control and asserting themselves over women in certain ways, yada, yada, yada. And keep in mind, as I discuss this stuff, that Olivia Wilde said the character Frank is based off of Jordan Peterson. So we're just holding that in our mind as we learn more about incels, okay? So with Frank's sort of empire being geared toward incels, it is safe to assume that most of the men in Victory also would be incels. And I think several of them are more like Jack, where they may have a romantic relationship, but they're not getting what they think they deserve out of the relationship. And some of the men um, didn't even have like a partnership before they got into victory. And we learn in the film that the men have a choice of who they want brought into victory with them. And Jack did want it to be Alice, but it is insinuated that there are men in victory who brought in women that maybe didn't know them or they weren't dating, which is very scary because the women are kidnapped and then put into this virtual reality. I want to pause here and kind of go through a history of how incel beliefs came to be popularized aside from the original like incel community, which was geared toward like lonely single people. And this is really a history of men's rights activism, which has now kind of combined with incel communities to create these more like toxic um, internet spaces where men hold these very misogynistic beliefs. And so I'm taking this timeline from an article by Lindsay, which was published in 2022. It's called Swallowing the Black Pill, Involuntary Celibates, Anti-Feminism Within Digital Society. It is a fantastic article. It's on the sources page, at least the citation for it is. It's available on Google Scholar if you look it up. I was blown away. I thought it was such a great article. It really outlines a lot of this stuff, and I I don't even have time to go through all of it. Um, But if you are interested in learning more about the rhetoric around being pilled, like if you've heard people say they're red-pilled or black-pilled, then this article is a really great place to start if you want more of that kind of background. But I'm going to just focus mostly on um, just general men's rights without getting into pilling. <laughs> so this article starts with saying that in the 1960s, when women's lib movements were starting up, there were kind of like concurrent men's liberation movements that were developing. And they were largely aligned with feminist ideals and goals. And they had a focus on male issues such as like the male only draft, emotional stoicism, and pressures of traditional masculinity. And although, like, the men's liberation movements were focusing on those male issues, they often were using the same kind of, like, ideology or political understanding that the women's lib movements were using. And I think there are some, like, really fascinating arguments, and particularly about things like only drafting men um, for the army. And if we also think about kind of, like, the time frame in the 1960s and um, Vietnam and, like, who was getting drafted, like, there's some really interesting stuff there. And it makes sense why a men's liberation movement would develop kind of separately, but also drawing upon sort of like collaborative ideology or collaborative works with feminist movements, because there needed to be a space for some of these male issues, but 
at the end of the day, it really is all about like liberation for all. However, by the time we hit the late 70s, men's lib had split into two movements. One that was kind of like the original that aligned with feminism, and one that was directly opposed. And this second movement that opposed feminism would make claims that gender differences were widely exaggerated and dismissed the role of the patriarchy for either men or women, that the patriarchy could be harmful to men or women, which is like a central argument of feminism. These beliefs about gender differences being exaggerated or about the patriarchy not harming people actually ended up into evolving into beliefs that women are the ones who hold all the power in society and wield it against men. Between the 1980s and the 2000s, this second movement, which evolved into what's called the MRA or Men's Rights Activism Movement, continued to gain attention and to gain people following it as the economic situation for regular people became unstable. And this is something that comes up a lot with um, like incels and is actually shown in the movie is that like unemployment or economic instability can really drive people, particularly men, to more like misogynistic worldviews. And I think it can be kind of helpful to see it as a protective, like seeking protective factors or seeking like defense against the own instability in their lives. I don't think it makes it better, but I think it can be helpful to understand it that way. And so if we think about, especially in America, like between the 80s and the early 2000s, there were like several (laughs) dicey financial situations. And as we were entering the early 2000s, like we're coming up on the hills of uh, the, the Great Recession. The fluctuating economy contributed to this like evolving in extremism of beliefs. And in this period of time, MRA beliefs started to evolve into things like ending um, support programs for victims of domestic violence and arguing that courts don't ever respect fathers' rights and are tools for women to, like, suck money out of men. While I'm not quite sure what the argument that we should end support for programs for survivors of domestic violence is about, because men also benefit from those programs, as they can also be victims of domestic violence, um, there is, like, something to the father's rights or, like, courts argument that I think it makes it complicated to dispute these MRA beliefs and contributes to why people get sucked into them. Because I think, especially prior to, like, the 2000s, there was kind of a trend of if there was any custody dispute or child support dispute, it would the courts might tend to bias towards women, uh, particularly as it was like heterosexual couples that were going through these because any other type of couple wasn't allowed to legally exist. Women ending up with the benefit of like full custody more often than not or, you know, getting higher alimony or child support payments from men. And so like there is a conversation to be had there, right, about how does gender bias play a role in decisions for regarding custody. However, the MRA argument becomes that women have like built this system to take everything from men, which is so not true and really doesn't make sense when you think about like who has been in charge of this country historically and who established systems like our court systems. It, it wasn't women, that's for sure. But before I get too sidetracked, um, 
The final kind of piece in the puzzle of this timeline is that as we come into the 2000s and the internet starts to become more accessible for people, MRA, men's rights movements shifted online and they could start to spread faster. And in this time period, which is kind of the iteration we're in now, um, these movements, I'm doing air quotes, (laughs) these movements shifted to cultural issues rather than policy or legal reform, which is where like women's lib movements tend to focus is on advocating for policy changes to, you know, make like workplaces more equitable. And the MRA movement shifted into essentially waging a culture war. And so that is where we see the MRA and incel community joining is in this time where it shifted online is it started to sort of line up and the shift to cultural issues makes it easier for incels who are ready to be radicalized to join up with it like a more MRA focused community as the cultural issues tend to focus on how women have wronged men and that is what incels often tend to believe is that they have been wronged by women and it is wrong for women to withhold sex from them. I'm not going to lie and pretend like I understand this. I think some of these beliefs are, are really quite icky, um, but I also think that they're really important to to highlight. And it's important to talk about how dangerous this ideology is. And in the years since these communities have shifted to be more online, we have seen an increase in mass murders or mass crimes that are associated with incel and men's rights ideology. If you're familiar with the Isla Vista shooter, I don't want to say his name um, to give him any credit, um, but the Isla Vista shooter was an incel and had a lot of these beliefs where he essentially thought that every woman who rejected him should have owed him sex or owed him a date or a romantic relationship. And he claimed that the reason he murdered or was going on his mass shooting spree was as revenge against these women who could have stopped it all if they just had sex with him. And honestly, since the Isla Vista shooting, there has been several murderer mass murderers that have cited his manifesto and his beliefs as the inspiration for their mass murders or massacres. And according to one of the articles I was reading since the Isla Vista shooting, there have been at least 50 women who have been murdered by people who are explicitly espousing incel beliefs. And that may not sound like a lot, but if we think about the fact that incel murderers often tend to be like lone wolf events, and they don't tend to be in relationships with women. The reality is, is that women who are in relationships with men, particularly men who own guns, are more likely to be murdered by their partners than by anyone else. However, incels are not typically in relationships with women. And so the fact that they have killed this many women when it is not the most like common way for women to die or to be murdered... Uh, is significant and is upsetting. And it can be traced back to the ideology and to see how these men who commit these crimes purposely say, I'm doing this because women wouldn't have sex with me. 
And as the internet continues to grow and communities on the internet start to grow, and as more and more of these crimes get committed where they're explicitly connected to incel ideology, the impact of incel beliefs become more and more mainstream. And that's what I was referring to earlier of like, it's no longer that you have to go to like 4chan or some website that, you know, most of us don't know how to get to. It's that you can see this kind of ideology or this rhetoric on Facebook, on Instagram. There are memes that get shared that have incel ideology to them. And as they get shared more and more and get farther and farther away from the source, they seem to become more innocuous. And the more mainstream a belief it is, the more it can be like targeted at people, or the more people, obviously, they can get into it. And that was actually some of the criticism of the film that I was reading in some reviews, is that when we learn that Jack, Harry Styles' character, is an incel, the reveal is that like he's kind of a nasty-looking guy who sits in his dark apartment on his computer all day, and he has like a patchy beard and greasy hair. And the contrast to his persona in Victory, where he's like clean-cut, heartthrob, great hair, looking like classic Harry Styles, right? Like he he looks way better in his victory persona. And some of the critiques I have seen online is that it could be more impactful to have Jack look almost similarly in real life to show that it's not just like, you know, gross neck beard, basement dweller guys who get into incel ideology, that it is this more mainstream thing, particularly when we think about the types of influencers that are using incel ideology. And this is where I'm going to get more into how Frank Chris Pine's character parallels Jordan Peterson and why that is so freaking dangerous. So how does Peterson align with the incel community? Because Peterson himself is not an incel. He is married to a woman, has children with this woman, and they appear to be in a long-term relationship. He has never, uh, like, publicly said that he is an involuntary celibate, but he does speak to this community. And one of the ways that incels get into the community is through self-help. And Jordan Peterson is a big self-help guy, as I talked about in my episode on him. And one of the reasons why incels end up seeking self-help or why the self-help community leads into incel communities is because often these young men who feel that they are having trouble finding a partner are going online to look for self-help to help them find a partner. And the sad thing is that, like, I think there is something admiral to that, right? Of, like, there being young men who are having trouble maintaining relationships and instead of immediately blaming women, they are trying to find out how they can help themselves and identify the problem in themselves. However, if you just are Googling, you know, key key phrases about like, you know, can't get a girlfriend or, you know, help getting girlfriend, the things that are going to come up are going to be increasingly leading toward these incel communities. So even if you start with Jordan Peterson's like 12 rules for life, let's say you went on YouTube right now to like watch a video of Jordan Peterson. So I have one pulled up that's from his channel called How Gender Differences Lead to Different Outcomes for Men and Women. It's like a video he posted three months ago. And I'm looking at the comments and there's one from nine days ago where someone is going on and on about how 
we inevitably must control female sexuality if we want a better society. Females have centralized sexuality in mating, thus allowing for low IQ people to reproduce more, felons and ill-behaved men reproduce more, hardworking and ill-behaved men reproduce less, blah, 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 blah. Like, this is, this is NCEL stuff, (laughs) this, this, this comment. And if I was a person watching this video and then I see this comment and I would be like, huh, interesting. I want to know more about this. Let me Google some of the stuff in here. That's going to lead me to incel like message boards or it's going to lead me closer or maybe to another video that's related. And although Jordan Peterson himself didn't say any of those things in the video, the people who are following him hold these ideas and then spread them to each other. So that's one way in which like the self-help part of Jordan Peterson's work like leads people into incel communities and then the incels like keep coming to his work and like spreading it to each other. However, Dr. Peterson is not without blame. (laughs) It's not just people that misinterpret his work. Like I mentioned in the last video or the last episode, he has this idea that men belong at the top of the hierarchy because they are naturally competent. And so a lot of his self-help is based on this premise that men are more competent than women, that like that he says this, men are more competent than women and so they deserve to be at the top of the hierarchy. And if you are a man who is not performing at the like level of, I don't know, a, a king or a little emperor who would sit at the top of a hierarchy, then there's something that you're doing wrong to not tap into your full potential. And so you clean your room, you stand up straight, you you know, be easy in your speech or whatever his like rules are, that will help you to control the chaos in your life, control the femininity in your life, and get you back to the point where you need to be. I hope I don't have to do too much explaining to see how this would then draw in people who are vulnerable to incel ideologies. If you are a person on the internet who is struggling with romantic relationships and you've been introduced into this community that says, hey, we have the answer for you. The answer is not that you're undesirable. It's that women are bad and wrong and don't have sex with us because of, you know, X, Y, or Z. And then you hear someone like Jordan Peterson say, you as a man should rightfully be at the top of a hierarchy and should rightfully be competent. What a mixed message to get. And you're going to start to believe that if I just follow the 12 rules and I get my life into control then everything that I want is going to fall into place. And what happens when that doesn't work? When cleaning your room doesn't automatically get you a girlfriend or get you laid, what do you think is going to happen to these young men? They become more disaffected and more disillusioned and dig deeper into this misogynistic worldview. Because then it's not just that, you know, oh, I'm not good enough to be at the top of the hierarchy. It's that these women are doing something wrong. They're not following the rules. I followed my rules as a man. The women didn't follow their rules. And so it's their fault I don't have a girlfriend or I don't have a sexual partner. And I'm not extrapolating. Like, this is stuff that I have read on some of these forums because I like to go and see what they're up to. Keep an eye on on the incels. Um, And it is really easy to use some of Peterson's commentary to support some of these beliefs. Peterson loves to go really hard on this hierarchy thing, too. There's a quote from the New York Times article I was reading where he says, People hold that our culture is an oppressive patriarchy don't want to admit that the current hierarchy might be predicated on competence. Basically, he's saying, like, 
if you call out that there is any oppression happening in our culture as it stands, you're ignoring the fact that the people at the top earned it, right? That they were, they're competent enough to be there. And because they're quote unquote competent, there should be no change to the hierarchy ever. And your experience of it being oppressive is like your own delusion. Gaslighting, right? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> that, that's gaslighting. And if we go back to the film for a moment, we can see how Don't Worry Darling is a kind of way to lay out what this belief looks like. Frank, the character, has built the victory on this same idea of hierarchy, that men have to do certain jobs and are better at making decisions, so therefore they decide where the women go and what the women do, both in victory and in real life. The, the women, aside from Bunny, the women have absolutely no choice of being in the simulation. And the women never get to leave the simulation. The men leave the simulation every day when they're going to quote-unquote work. We find out it's that they're leaving the simulation to go back to the real world. The women never get to leave. They never get a choice of getting a break from being in the simulation. They don't even know they're in the simulation. And the implicit message there is that women are too stupid to make decisions for themselves, which is the implicit assumption that Peterson has in his idea that hierarchy is based on competence and men belong at the top of of the hierarchy. So when Olivia Wilde says her character Frank is based on Jordan Peterson, this is a big part of it, of that if you just clean yourself up, put on a nice suit, you know, go to work every day and do what you're supposed to do, and then you will be rewarded if you're a man (laughs) by being at the top of your hierarchy. Whether that's like the hierarchy of your family, like how Jack clearly holds power over Alice or the top of like a whole system, right? Like how Frank is at the top of the hierarchy um, of victory. And along with Peterson's idea, right, that if the hierarchy is there, it's good and natural. The fact that Frank is at the top of the hierarchy reinforces that he is competent and deserves that position. So there's no way to topple him because if you're using Peterson's beliefs, this underlying assumption that just because someone is at the top of the hierarchy proves that they are competent, then you can never prove that they're not competent because by the function of them being at this position proves their competency regardless of any other evidence. And that's exactly what happens with Alice when she's trying to tell people that there's something wrong and that Frank is not all he's cracked up to be. And the response is essentially, well, Frank is the leader. He can't be bad because he's the leader. And that is like almost word for word what Peterson believes about hierarchy and competence. And so that is why like I'm saying this stuff is so dangerous because how are you supposed to improve well-being or improve like equity or, you know, other situations or call out wrongdoings and oppression when you're going to be met with, well, so-and-so is at the top of the hierarchy, so they're competent. (laughs) there's no there's absolutely no way to argue against that and so his position sets up a world in which it reinforces power and control and does not leave any opportunity for redistributing power or rethinking the way that the hierarchy is built now some of these i think you could argue a little more implicit how they align with insul culture and i can i can hear arguments of like you know how it's maybe not a one-to-one relationship between Peterson and the insult community. Cool. I'm going to read you a quote from the New York Times um, that I think will show you why 
Jordan Peterson is the incel hero. And so this is from a, a profile written by Bowles that came out in 2018. And I'm just going to I'm just going to read this exchange. So the the journalist brings up the um one of the killings done by someone who cited these insult beliefs. This is the context. Journalist brings this up to Peterson. And here's the quote. <laughs> Violent attacks are what happens when men do not have partners, Mr. Peterson says, and society needs to work to make sure those men are married. He was angry at God because women were rejecting him, Mr. Peterson says of the Toronto killer. The cure for that is enforced monogamy. That's actually why monogamy emerges. Mr. Peterson does not pause when he says this. Enforced monogamy is to him simply a rational solution. Otherwise, women will all only go for the most high-status men, he explains. And that couldn't make either gender happy in the end. Half the men fail, he says, meaning that they don't procreate. And no one cares about the men who fail. I laugh because it is absurd. You're laughing about them, he says, giving me a disappointed look. That's because you're female. Okay, I'm reiterating again that this was a quote from this man in the New York Times. This man said this to a journalist, and it was written down in the New York Times. In response to a question about someone who murdered multiple people by running a van through a public space and cited the Isla Vista killer, saying the reason he drove the van through the space was because women would not have sex with him. And Peterson's response to that is enforced monogamy. Now, I want to be careful here because Peterson has um, already gone through this of people saying that what he's saying is the government or someone should step in and say one man to one woman, you know, you have to marry and, and be with one person. And he has argued that it's not government enforced monogamy, but it's socially promoted, culturally inculcated monogamy, that the idea would be our society should only value monogamy to the point where there's no other option and everyone would give up any other type of like relationship or type of dating. Regardless of what he really means by enforced monogamy, there are two things that are very wrong about this position that he's taken. One is that he, in this position, he is reiterating the implicit belief that men deserve to have sex with women. That, that's what's underneath this at the end of the day, that men deserve to have sex with women regardless of what the men are bringing to the table. And within this belief, we ignore people who want to have sex with other types of people, right? Other types of sexualities, right? This is a very like heterosexual focused belief, which makes sense because Peterson doesn't seem to think that like trans and gay people should exist. But the second part is that this statement implicitly puts the responsibility for men's sexuality or sexual desires on the shoulders of women, that it is women who need to step up and get with men so that men don't murder other women. The ab that that is I don't even have any way to like have empathy for that point of view or to unpack what that would mean. It it's just I'm just going to say it again. The the belief here is that women need to have sex with men to prevent men from murdering other women. Regardless of how you want to dance around how that's enforced, whether it's the government or the culture, blah, 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 blah. The belief is that women need to have sex with men to save lives. That's in, that is absolute insanity. 
And it's baffling to me that Peterson continues to hold this belief because it has come up again since 2018. He holds this belief even though his entire shtick, his entire self-help empire is based on this idea of personal responsibility. How are you then going to turn around and say that, oh, these men who commit mass murders shouldn't be held personally responsible for their actions? It all comes down to the fact that a woman didn't have sex with that man or didn't enter into a monogamous relationship with that man. Where's the personal responsibility, Dr. Peterson, for the murders that this man has committed? Or not even for like the most extreme cases, but just for like the misogyny and violence against women and harassment of women that comes out of the incel community. It all boils down to, well, the women should just like have sex with, throw them a bone, right? He gave almost the exact same argument about Olivia Wilde basing the character on him. And I covered this a little bit at the end of the last episode, but he, you know, he, he started crying and saying that, you know, these, these incel men are so misunderstood and he's proud to be their hero because they're always like the butt of the joke. And I would hope that after hearing what the beliefs are of the incel community, you can understand that one, incels are not like a protected class, right? It's it's not like the incels are a community of people who are left out of society because of like their skin color or their religion or sexuality or whatever. This is a group of people who have co-created an ideology that is so toxic that it leads them to harass, attack, and murder women. And then this man wants to go on national television and say, well, really, should they be to blame? It's because women aren't having sex with them that they do this stuff. It's disgusting. And it is very clear in the film, too, that this is what incel beliefs boil down to. Like, Frank's whole empire is based on women should just show up, have sex with you, and make dinner for you. And women don't need to have personalities, and they don't need to have dreams, they don't need to have ambitions, they don't need to have flaws, they don't need to have complexities, they just need to do the same thing every day and meet every one of your needs when it's ready. And that's one of the reasons why I liked the ending of the film, in that Alice, when she realizes what's happening, there's no rationalizing with Jack. There's no disgust. Like, he's so far gone that the only option is for her to escape. And yes, she does then commit violence against a man. I'm not saying that that's ideal. But the reality is, is that once she realizes how far he has gone, she knows there's no rationalizing with him. There is no world in which this man, Jack, thinks that she is a person with her own unique desires and needs. There's no way that he'll listen to her because he was willing to drug her, kidnap her, strap her to a bed, and lock her in their apartment, all so that he could have his little fantasy life. There's no way that he'll take into consideration her needs. And if we want to be individually responsible about it, then that's what incels need to realize, is that if your expectation for women is that they'll just show up to be a warm body for you when you want it, or make you dinner when you're hungry... No one is going to want to do that for you. You can hire people to do that. Actually, we have a whole economy based around people, you know, accepting money for your needs to be met. If you don't want to then put in the other part of like building a relationship and, you know, wanting to know about a person and investing in another person and yourself so that you're continuing to grow together, then you don't really want a relationship. And for someone like 
Dr. Peterson, who has a very public platform with lots of people who are either incels or incel adjacent, to still be perpetuating these ideas in 2022, that if a woman would just have sex with a man, then all the problems would disappear. It just de- it dehumanizes women. It completely leaves out other people with any other sexuality. And it strips this community of any responsibility for their own actions. And what I would say is if you really want to get into a relationship, right, if you want to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and 12 rules your way to chaos and order or whatever, go to therapy. Go to therapy tomorrow or today if you can get in. (laughs) Go to therapy. Figure out what it is that's going on with you. Have a professional sit down with you to help you diagnose the problem instead of a man who has a YouTube channel. Have a professional get to know your backstory, know your history, help you sort out what is it that I really want from life. Maybe I don't even want a relationship. Maybe I'm fine with like some casual dating and having a maid <laughs> that you that you pay money to, right? That's not your wife to be your maid, right? Maybe we don't all have to be in the same type of monogamous relationships. Maybe you're non-monogamous or polyamorous, right? There's so many possibilities for how you can build your life. But if you just like keep insisting that you have to shoehorn your life into one path and women need to like get out of the way to let that happen, you're never actually going to be happy. So again, my final piece of advice would be go to therapy. Figure your stuff out. Get some help. You can't do this on your own. But you definitely can't do it with the advice of a guy who thinks that women are naturally incompetent and chaotic, right? That's not going to help you very much with your, with your goals. And so I think paired with, again, the previous episode where I really laid out a lot more about Peterson's like, philosophy and background, I hope that I've demonstrated how dangerous this ideology is. That regardless of if Don't Worry Darling was a good movie or not, I think it was, a, I think it was an okay movie, <laughs> I'm being honest. Like, I liked it. Could have been better. Could have could have gotten more out of it. But I think the purpose of it is to kind of illustrate the extreme to which this ideology can go. And I personally, not to be like a fear monger, but I don't think it's too far out of the realm of possibility to think that someone wouldn't try to invent a VR world where you could kidnap women to make them be your wife. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I don't think it's outside of the possibility that this ideology couldn't continue if un- if unstopped, if unchecked this ideology couldn't go to the point of someone actually trying to develop something like victory. And I know that's like kind of wild. (laughs) Um, I acknowledge that. That's like kind of an out there thought. But I, I really want to just impress upon you this fact or this idea that this ideology is very, very dangerous. And so if you know someone who is like in these communities, you know, or starting to get into them, even if it's like through Jordan Peterson This would be something to watch out for in a conversation to have with someone. Maybe send them this episode or have them watch the film, Don't Worry Darling, and, you know, talk to them about it. Suggest therapy (laughs) over and over and over again. Um, But, like, be on the lookout for this stuff. And, again, as it's more mainstream, we're going to start seeing it popping up in other places. It may not just be on Peterson's YouTube channel, right? It may start to spread to to other areas. And it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous ideology. Like, people have died because of this ideology. So with that sad note, (laughs) um, I want to wrap us up here. I hope you all remember the definition of gaslighting, that it's about undermining another person's confidence and stability 
by causing them to doubt their own senses and beliefs. I hope that you could remember some of the either history or beliefs behind the incel community and how Jordan Peterson can be a pipeline to those dangerous communities. And I hope that you'll consider watching the film <laughs> if you haven't. I do I do recommend it, um, even if you knowing that it's maybe not everything that it could be. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through. I appreciate every one of my listeners and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.